The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I have come to determine over the past 20-some-odd years of preaching, right at 20 actually, that there are times when the length of a sermon directly uh, coordinates with the quality of the singing. And uh, y'all in trouble. You better have brought a sandwich. And I know we just had a good meal, but that was outstanding. Um, that's, that's not a, a testimony to, to talent, although there was plenty of talent in this room, and still is. Uh, but it's a testimony to the heart and to how involved and enthused and energetic you are about the cause of Christ. And uh, particularly, I'm glad that you led I'll Fly Away there at the end because the song before that, I would have probably cried when I got up here by heaven because it's going to be a place. It's going to be a sweet place. So, uh, I have been paying really close attention since I've been here. As a matter of fact, I knew I would not have enough time here to do what I'm about to describe to you. So I've actually done this over about the past three or four days. And that is, I've just started listening to people. You know, you think I do that all the time, but not necessarily. I started listening to people and I was listening for basically two words as I heard people talk. And uh, I'll preface this by saying I was in my home I was out shopping, I was in restaurants, I was in worship services and Bible classes, and so I'm lumping a lot of this into the same field as I take my, if you will, very unscientific um, survey. But I was listening to the words, I want. And I heard people say an awful lot of stuff during the past, the last few days or week or however long, and you know, people would say stuff like, I want a new car. I'd like a new job. I want a new home. My children all week said I want some cookies. Uh, one of them said I want a potty. Uh, you know, things went on and on, and I won't keep adding the list. You get what I'm saying. I also listened to a very similar phrase, or for a very similar phrase, and that is the words I need. And people said a lot of the same things. Almost everything I heard was related to, you know, what they used in their lives. Again, homes and cars and money and activity and recreation and relationships. And I'm just categorizing for time's sake. But I'm going to be completely honest with you. I never heard anyone this week. Maybe they worded it different. Maybe I did not hear. But I was in tune to try, literally say, I need Jesus. I didn't hear that. Again, I was in worship services and Bible class and fellowshipping with Christians, and I just didn't hear it. I never heard anybody say, I need salvation. And you know as well as I do, those two that I just list there are completely synonymous, have to be related. They're inseparable, but yet at the same time, they are so comprehensible to what really matters in life. Out of everything that we could need, so we say, or want, you might even add the third one, or even the fact that we just, in some sense of our mind, hope for things. 
Nothing, as you well know, could or even should exceed our desire, our complete desire to, with every ounce and fiber of our being, to serve Jesus Christ our Lord. And even beyond that, to be looking for that city, if you will. To quote a song in Scripture at the same. Or looking to be flying away toward heaven. There's no greater desire than should exist. And so I said all of that to admit this. I listened to myself this week. And I paid attention to the way I felt. And the way I thought. And it's almost disturbing that I never filled those boxes enough either. Even knowing what I wanted to hear, what I maybe was hoping to expect to hear from others, never filled those boxes necessarily to the way I should myself. So my question of this hour, we've been talking today about the God of more which was invented in a dentist parking lot in a couple of seconds, but that's our theme. We've been talking about the God of more and the things that God has the ability to do. The absolute authority, ability to do. And we've already examined the fact that He can definitely assist us when we're disappointed. He can absolutely assist us when we are disabled in sin but he can also assist us and this seems more positive if you will but he needs to continually assist us with our own desires take your bibles and open them with me this will be the most familiar text that we've covered in the last three four hours here together but i want you to go with me to the book of john again once again we're looking at one of the miracles of jesus as recorded here we're going to be in john chapter 6 uh, you will probably read through the first two or three verses as I'm still continuing to talk. I encourage you to do that. And it'll take you just a few seconds to say, oh yeah, I know that. <laughs> I've heard this account, some would say story. I've heard that so many times through my life. I can remember the first time I heard it. And I was probably, uh, not necessarily literally remember, but I was probably under a year old the first time I sat in a Bible class inside of a building like this and was told about Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 and how wonderful that miracle was and how miraculous it was. And I can remember even as a child, I don't know if you played like this, but I can remember as a child, uh, me and my sister and brother getting out and we would steal some of the saltine, the wafers out of the house and get them outside and wouldn't have but three or four, but we would see if we could eat and share those together. And most times than not, my brother who's six years old, we couldn't make it through the three of them. But in other words, we couldn't do what God had done. It was an unrepeatable, if you will, miracle. And the truth is, although it be a miracle, it is containing in it such physical things to commit our minds to understanding, and even better yet, better understanding those things that are spiritual. So we're going to go through this just as similar to what we've done in the last two hours with the previous two miracles that we pulled out of the hat, if you will, to use. But we're going to go through this and kind of exegete it as far as what's actually happening. But I hope that when we get to the end of this, although we're going to give several 
practical type applications, I hope we get down to just saying we've got to desire the spiritual things of life. We've got to do exactly what the Apostle Paul recorded uh, as he was writing to the Colossian brethren, and we've got to set our affections, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, on the things above and not. Now, I don't think not is written in the word bold in your translation, but I bold it in mine. Set your affection on things above and not on the things of this earth. You see, really the reason why, and again, I thought necessary to do it. It was biblical to prove it. But the reason why we're dealing with disappointments in life, the reason why we're dealing with the issues that we mentioned in those last two hours really comes down to the fact that I, you can measure yourself against it, but I'm too focused on the things around me instead of looking at the things above me. I'm spending too much time looking in my peripheral and not spending nearly enough time looking at the eternal. And I'm living in this life in a way that God never expected us to live, honestly. Yes, we are pilgrims passing through this area. Yes, we must needs go. Yes, all those things apply. But God constantly wants me to remember, and I think sometimes He assists in, a, in what seems to be a negative way, but He wants me to come down to the fact in life to be broken if need be to the point where I say no one but God can help and He alone. So hopefully we'll see some of that developing in this text. Again, very familiar. I make no apologies for it. Uh, John chapter 6, reading from the King James translation, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. And after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's also the Sea of Gethsemane. It depended on what side of the, uh, of the, of the water you were on. It's whether you called it after your area or not. And the verse 2 says, And there was a great multitude that followed him because, now watch, this is key, that followed him because they saw the miracles that he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, verse 3, and there sat there with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nine. I told you in the last hour, if you want to help yourself, study the book of John, look for these feasts, and you'll see time shifts every time. This Passover's come around and come around and it's coming around again. But going on in the reading there, verse 5, And when Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come with him. And he saith unto Philip, For whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And, he, and this he said to prove him, that is to prove Philip. This he said to prove him, for he knew himself what he would do. So no mystery here. Verse 7, And Philip answered him, Two hundred pennies worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one may take a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, that is Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? Legitimate question. And Jesus said, Make the men to sit down. And now there, were so, and now there was uh, much grass in that place. So the men sat down, and the number of them was about 5,000. Again, you well know as Bible students, they numbered the men. My guesstimation, now guesstimation is not an estimation, but my guesstimation is I want to see 20,000 people there. I want to see a spouse with every one of these people and a, chill, a child or so with them. Could have been, may not have been. But it says, and they were numbered about 5,000, verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sat down. 
likewise of the fishes as much as they would. Verse 12 said, And then they were filled. Now that word filled means to fill completely to the brim. This is walking around rubbing your stomach and thinking hard in your mind about what you've just done. And they were filled, he says. They went on and they were filled. And then he said unto the disciples, verse 12, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. And therefore they gathered them together and filled their twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves that remained over and above unto them which they had eaten. And then those men, same men, they had, when they had said that they had seen the miracle of Jesus, they said, this of a truth, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Now, we'll stop right there at verse 14. It's the majority of what we need for this as well as I want to leave us thinking, just thinking right now that Jesus just converted the whole crowd. And then tell yourself, no, nah, he didn't. But we're going to find out. All right. Very simple, very practical principles. Number one, mark this down in your mind. There is no problem too big for Jesus to solve. Here he is. He's in this situation. We're going to continue to develop it and kind of expel out of it a little bit. But he's in the situation where he's out in a place and he has compassion and he sees these hungry people. These men, these women, potentially these children, these people are hungry. And according to the options that are given to him, excuse me, according to the options that are given him, there are no options. Both of these men come with the attitude of saying, look, we might, if we had 200 pennies worth of bread, get something, but it won't be enough. We might, if we took this little lad's lunch and brought it in, might have something, but it won't be enough. And so what he's going to do in this is to set himself up and to set them up to have their expectations exceeded. Because there's no problem too big for him to solve. Now let's just examine some of the terms in this, just backing up into verse 5 to reread it. And when he lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come with him, and saith unto Philip, For whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he knew what he would do. See, the idea here is, and it will be in my life, I've, I've known this, I've experienced it, most likely you have as well. There will be times when obviously God in His foreknowledge, God in His wisdom, His all-knowingness of what He knows, there are going to be times when we're going to be going along through life and God is going to test us, to prove us, not to see what we're capable of, but what He's capable of. That's a hard pill to swallow. There are things that I've dealt with in my life personally. I could, I could testify to any of them for you, in, you know, off in private. But I could say, this in my life was too hard, so I thought, too hard for me. Exactly. Exactly. God has put problems in my life. Again, I can say this providentially. I can say this based on my experience and what have you. But God has put things in my life, or at least allowed things in my life providentially, that I'm convinced in hindsight, God must have done that to wake me up. He must have done that because He looked at me and said, Jim Merle is a problem solver. Jim Merle is a guy who everything that comes at him, he seems to be able to handle. But as he does that, he's forgetting the things that I handle that he thought he handled. And as he does that, he needs to have nothing more than, and again, you can have your own judgment on this, he needs to have a Hebrews chapter 
uh, 12, verses 5 through 11, wake-up call. Chastisement of the Lord. He needs to have himself tested. So he's got these guys here, but the first one right here, obviously, that we're looking at, Philip. And he comes and asks these men, you know, what is it that we can do? How can we handle this? And those men, they have no idea. They have finally, for the first time, have encountered a problem where they're there with Jesus, they're present with Him. There are going to be moments in our lives when we're going to have to face something that is so impossible for us that when we do face it and step through it, there is no denial who took care of that. That's not a New Testament principle as much as it is an Old Testament principle anyway. You look at the enemies that the children of Israel were made to face. And what I call the ungetoverable situations that they faced. And you see the times. Jericho is only one example. Ai is yet another. You see the times when they faced those enemies. The Philistines always among the, the, the main part of that when they faced those enemies and God made them do it in such a way as to all they could do is give him the glory. <clears throat> well, my skill ain't basketball or baseball. That's, That's a lot better than that. Two of them. I'll, I'll either stop coughing or choke to death. So, <laughs> Don't know that I've managed two before. But we've got to have a system. I can remember hearing this story, whether or not this is true or not. I heard a story at one occasion of a little boy described as being three or four years old. He was out in the yard and, and trying to play with some rocks. And <clears throat> there was a large rock in his mother's flower garden that he was trying to push. And he pushed and he struggled and he strained and he pulled and he did everything he could. But of course, his small size, he wasn't moving this larger boulder. And finally, his daddy walked out on the porch and he yelled at him. He said, son, are you using all the strength you have to move that? And he said, yes, daddy, I am. No, sir, you didn't ask me to help. That's the missing link. That's what it is. So number one, he's faced with this problem. And he sees it as there's no problem too big for him to solve. Number two, and I love the way this develops here. And Philip answered him, 200 pennies worth of bread is not sufficient for them that even may take a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? How is this individual going to overcome this? How is he going to do that? Second principle. There is no person too small for Jesus to use. Nobody. Out of all the men that were there, the 5,000 plus numbered men that were there, out of his own disciples, who at this point in time in his ministry had had at least some experience with him, had already seen already at least the two that we know about that are recorded even in the book of John, probably more so, but had already witnessed at least the two hugely miraculous physical miracles that he performed. And they even, when were questioned about this, didn't pass their lips whether it crossed their mind it didn't pass their lips to say Jesus I think you could do this I think you could handle such I think you could you could just somehow perform a miracle and deal with our biggest issue they brought him to the boy he gets in the presence of the boy right here and watch the way this stuff pans out right here 
He brings the lunch to them, apparently. The lad was here. He has five barley loaves, two small fish, but what are they among so many? Verse 10. And Jesus said, make the men to set down. Now, the next phrase right there in your translation may be what's known as kind of a parenthetical, uh, parenthetical statement. It may be in brackets. And I'll tell you how helpful that is in this case. But make the men to sit down. Side note, now there was much grass in that place. And I've oftentimes scratched the head. You know, there's that little, that ain't receding hairline. That's where I scratch my head a lot. And I've thought to myself, what does that have to do? You know, I'm an analytic, analytic person. What does that have to do with anything? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to, what's the next phrase? Lie down in green pastures. The Lord provides. The Lord is about to provide. And He sets them up in a situation to provide for them that was going to be obvious to them in a sense. But He has them to sit down. There was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, and the number of them was about 5,000. And Jesus, underline this in your, in your Bibles if you'd like. And Jesus, first word, took the loaves... And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. So this little lad comes up, it's what I'm calling him here, because that's the King James speak of it, lad, little boy, how old we don't know. But after the fact that they have encountered a problem that is seemingly to human much too big to solve, now they've got a Savior there in Jesus who is willing to use a person that seems much too small to use. And that boy comes up, and I don't know exactly the exchange other than what we have here, and he does basically three things. The success of this miracle in the moment was as dependent on this boy as it was Jesus. Now, follow me out on this because you could easily back up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. The success of this miracle in the moment was as much dependent on this young boy as it was on Jesus because, number one, this little boy had to transfer to Jesus. He had to take what he had, as described, as these five barley loaves, two small fish, basically wafer-type crackers, fish, and described as small, probably like sardine-ish, and he had to give that to Jesus. That means when I encounter an issue that I cannot handle, God will not work until I give it to him. Oh, there's an easy one. When I encounter a problem that I cannot handle, but yet God can. He will not work until I give it to Him. Now, how many times have you lived that life? How many times have I been in my life frustrated, downtrodden, depressed, discouraged, disgruntled, angry with God over my current situation? And even, I mean, praying to God, God, please help. Give me your guidance. Give me your strength. Of course, we should do so. But in the reality of it, in my heart, I hadn't given it to him to begin with. Now, oftentimes we'll say that. We'll verbalize it. You know, just give it to the Lord. When will I do that? This little boy didn't look at Jesus and say, get your own fish. He didn't look at Jesus and say, it's not my problem. 
Of course, he'd have been older, he might have. A teenager probably. Or me. He didn't look and deny him. The first step in the first part of the recipe in what ultimately would change the lives of every person there to one extent was that he was willing in the position he was to transfer it to the Lord. Number two, Jesus had to take it. He couldn't give Jesus whatever he chose. He couldn't say to Jesus, and I know I'm, I'm theorizing and illustrating, I get that, but listen. He couldn't say to Jesus, yeah, I got five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus or the disciple says, well, he needs them. And him say, well, he can't have that. But I've got a stash over here with two more loaves of bread and a half a fish that's been chewed on. He couldn't do it. Neither can I come to the Lord in the middle of my difficulties and say, God, I want to give this to you. And God say, that's not what I want from you. And me say, yeah, but that's what I'm giving. How many times have I lived my life supposedly, these huge quotations, serving the Lord but doing it my way and not His? Denying His instruction and denying His requirements and denying His, his patterns and just saying, you know what, my worship or my life or the way I handle my career or my relationships is good enough for me and God ought to take it. He had to transfer it to Jesus. But it had to be acceptable or taken by Him. Folks, I mean, the guilt falls upon us as much as anybody. But if you want to relate that to the denominational religious world as a whole, that's the missing link. Sometimes we and they, we're trying to give Jesus something he didn't ask for or in a way he didn't require it. It must be taken. And in the third place, in discussing this person who was not too small for Jesus to use, he not only transferred it, it was taken, then it was transformed. And see, there again, any of these things, I call this the recipe for success. If I don't transfer and he don't take, and then he doesn't, on the other side of that, God doesn't transform us or transform that issue, it won't change. Again, I can illustrate with you, on, and I may... Uh, I've got a great friend back home. His name is Matthew. Austin knows him. He spent nearly 10 years of his life addicted to drugs and alcohol. So much so that he actually was arrested charged with three felony accounts. One was dropped in court. But three felony accounts which included trafficking of methamphetamines. He was a mess. Former, if you want to call him former, it's the way we would think of him. Former member of the church, grew up in the church. You know, all the things that you would think would bring success that would end in a good result. He's in prison. I didn't even know where he went. I saw his address in the church directory. 
as being a federal penitentiary. And I remember one wondering what happened to him and two wondering why would the church, <laughs> that's kind of rude to put the guy, I mean, no it wasn't. Most loving thing I'd ever seen. He is far and away one of the most dedicated, faithful members of the Lord's church I know today. Because of the fact he took what he had. He took the problems he faced. And he handed it over to Jesus. And he took it. And he transformed this man into something he could have never been on his own. And if I don't get another word in as far as our text, that's probably just about enough. Because that's not the life of Matt Bishop. On another level, perhaps, that's the life of every one of us. Because without what God has to offer, which is more than we can give, nothing can happen. We cannot stand on our own. So here we've got a person, a situation, why I bring out the point that there's no problem too big for Jesus to solve. There is also no person too small for Jesus to use. But then in the reading here, there is no hunger too deep for Jesus to satisfy. You know, I said this hour was about the God of more and handling our desires. What do we need? What do we want in life? What is our focus in life? To continue this reading and tie it in. It says, and they sat down, verse 10, they sat down for there was much grass there. The number of them was about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and disciples that were with him and sat down. And likewise, the fishes as much as they would, verse 12. And when they were filled... He said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Watch what happened. When Jesus performed the miracle that he did, again physical, at this point physical upon physical upon physical. When Jesus performed the physical miracle, even then he made sure they were filled. They had nothing in them at that moment, according to what we read, that said, I'll take another piece. I was expecting more. You ever been into a restaurant and you get in there and you, you, know, you see the fat price on the menu anyway and they bring it out and you're like, what? I would have ordered two, but I need it. Not these folks. They didn't pay for double meat. Jesus gave them more than they could handle. He gave them the feeling of all that they would have. Why? Three principles apply right here. Maybe four. The first one basically is Jesus, and this is what he's going to be in the text anyway. He's the provision here of what I would first call the spiritual bread. Now, it's physical bread as we just read. 
As we just read, they were filled. They gathered up the 12 baskets simply of the fragments that remained. They took them with them. Jesus said, don't let them go to waste. But you see, in this account, the way that I read it earlier, reading down to verse 14 and kind of drawing that line and stopping off at the fact that they experienced the physical miracle in verse 14 to read it again, then those spake as they had seen the miracle, and Jesus did, that Jesus did, and this was the truth, the prophet that should come out of the world. So if you stop there, you think, well, feeding their bellies certainly did what he intended it to do because now they're happy and they love him and they think he's a prophet. And that may be true for a moment or two. But folks, miracles are actually very poor tools of evangelism. Now you guys say, hold up. Wait a minute, preacher. Yes. Because Jesus always illustrated with the physical, but he was always after the spiritual. He used the physical to get their heads to turn, to get them to lean in, to get them to have interest. But he had no intention of leaving them there. Jesus here in this illustration, as we're about to read, became for them the spiritual bread which was their real need should have been their real desire and their only want. Verse 25, we've got to skip down for time's sake. We've got to get some people up the road. Verse 25, And when they had found him, now basically he's performed the miracle, they've gone away for a bit, they're trying to track Jesus down. They want to get back in with him. I don't know why other than maybe they need a sandwich. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they say to him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? When did you get over here? And Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles which I did, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus says, Huh, you missed it. He hadn't explained it yet for their credit, but they missed it. He said, you, and we started out with this, this phrase anyway. It said there was a great company that came in the midst of him, and they followed him because he had healed the sick and the diseased. Verse 2, now here we are all this time later has passed, entire day or days has passed, and they come back again, and Jesus has to tell them, look, you came after me because you are hungry. And he says, verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth but for the meat which endureth and is everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him to hath God the Father sealed. And they said unto him, What shall we do that thou might work the works of God? Are you kidding him? Are you kidding him? They said just again, Can you do another miracle? And Jesus is doing, I did the miracle this day. Some of them are witnesses to the early ones. And I did another one that day. And now I've done another one that day that potentially some of these people, not all, could have witnessed all three. And the thing you want from me is another miracle. Now we know the rest of the story. There's going to get to be a point in this same storyline, account line, when Jesus is going to be approached by his disciples who say, show us the Father and it suffices us. And he said, you've already seen him. I've shown you all I'm going to show you. 
when he has to ridicule another crowd and say, look, if you hadn't, if you hadn't seen the prophets and understood Jonah and all that, you don't, I can't convince you. He's doing for them what they needed. He's doing for them not only what they needed, but what they should have wanted. Now, look at this the way this ties. Verse 25, And when they had found him the other side, they said to the rabbi, When comest thou hither? Verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat that endureth, and the gathering everlasting of the Son of Man, which are given to you of him that hath God and sealed. Verse 29, And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So he's starting to kind of toy with, the, with the, the mindset he's moving them toward. And he says, okay, you want to see a miracle? I, we can have miracles, but you better see God in this. We need to back up, rewind, and we need to show you what you just missed as you were stuffing your face because he was spiritual bread. Now, I know this congregation, as well as many in the area, as well as many back home, as well as many on the 12 or 13 states I've been blessed to travel to and preach. I know many congregations do a lot of great work, and they do a lot of great work surrounding benevolence and surrounding giving and surrounding, you know, feeding the hungry and clothing the, the naked and, and, you know, sheltering the poor. And that's wonderful. But here's the fact. This world needs more than soup and soap. It needs salvation. It does no good to provide for a man all the, in, all the intricacies of life, the food, the clothing, the shelter, the health care, and on and on, to have him die and stand in judgment and face a God he doesn't know. Now I'll give you everything out of my pantry at home and put you in my back bedroom. But if I don't let you know about Jesus before you walk out, I've done nothing. Not one thing. And you know who's most guilty of that? Me. Contrary to what the theory may be, I may be the chief of sinners among evangelists. Because for me, too many times, my duty's done in the pulpit instead of the park, instead of the place where my world lives. And I stand in front of them, and I don't know if you've ever considered such, but a lot of people will go to hell, be condemned and lost in hell, in spite of the providence of God that puts you in their path. Those moments when I felt inconvenienced or in a hurry, or just didn't want to stop and take the time, or didn't like the way they dressed or looked or smelled, or didn't like the, the person they you know, voted for in a voter box, or didn't like, and you go on, I didn't like, didn't like, didn't like, down to the didn't like, I'm not going to like hell very much. For the way I've shirked my, my responsibility on the rest of the world. That's the truth. And Jesus is spiritual bread. Why is he spiritual bread? He, he explains it. We hadn't read nearly enough. He said, don't labor for this, but labor for that. This is the work of God. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you may believe on him who hath sent you. Well, they're not going to believe based on, uh, based on crackers and, and fish. 
That does not go, that may get them to thinking. It may open their, you know, free their belly to open their mind. But that's as far as that goes, verse 30. And they said therefore to him, What sign showest thou then? And when are you going to do a miracle? He's still, we ain't going to do the other one. We ain't gonna, what's the problem with adding us? We can't do the first one. We can't, we can't perform a miracle for anybody. So how are we going to use that? We can't. And neither was he intending that to be the end result of what he used. He said, so where your fathers did eat manna in the desert, where it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that Moses gave you not that bread. So they claimed it. They, you look what Moses did. Moses didn't do that. Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread, which is from heaven. And for the bread of God is that. Watch this now. For the bread of God is he that cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. I'm the bread of life. Verse 34, he says it in more clear terms. Verse 35 as well. Then he said, verse 34 to them, The Lord evermore give you bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life that cometh down, and shall ne you shall never hunger, you shall never thirst. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not all that the Father giveth me. Shall I come? Shall you come to me? And him that cometh to me, and I will in no wise cast out. Why is that, Jesus? For it came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but that of the Father that sent me. So what did he come to do? To fill bellies? That wasn't it. To turn water to wine? Mm -hmm. to, to bring the lame by the pool of Bethesda and tell him to rise up and walk? Like we said, no. To, to have the man that comes with him in the next chapter or so, that comes up and says, hey, I tell you what, uh, I, my son is sick. He's back over here in Capernaum. He's sick. He's going to die. Come down to the house. Go your way. He's already healed. Was he trying to heal that boy's son? Not, not primary. Lazarus is laying in the tomb dead. Blind man before that. Did he just want everybody to be able to see? No, he passed a lot of blind men every day. Dead people all around him. He wanted to be to them a spiritual bread because he was the supernatural bread and he wanted for them to become the satisfying bread. He wanted them to want him. And he wanted to get them to that place. Now look at how that bears itself out. Verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, for I am the bread, that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. So he says, yeah, they, they had a supply, they did eat it, they were dead. They died, eventually. Verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven. Yeah, I assume he's pointing at itself. That a man may have and eat thereof and not die. For I am the living bread. Verse 51, which cometh down from heaven. If any man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, and I will give it for my life unto the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves. Drop down to verse 57 for time. And the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. What's happened? He wants them to be satisfied with what he has. Just take this. Did he want them to go hungry? No. But he wanted them to understand the same principle he used back in the Sermon on the Mount which he cut down to such concise terms. 
to let them know, at least a similar group, to let them know that they should be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That they should be filled by what He offered and not by the world. See, a lot of times, and I've experienced, seen there, been there, done that, certainly watched others do the same. The reason why people stay so deep set in sin and of the world is because they've got that emptiness in them where God should be filling, but yet they can't get to. Or they hadn't chosen that. And they're trying to fill it with everything but. And if any of you have actually been down a path like that, you know exactly what that feels like and where that results and what that's about. Jesus said, the manna you ate, that manna came from me. Oh no, Moses gave us the manna. No, the manna came from me. Let me show you the manna. We'll just, we're going to stop right here. You know what manna was? It was a small, round, white wafer that had a little taste of honey little sweetness to it. And they were required to gather it every day. Jane, I follow that. Small, round, white wafer with a touch of honey that they were supposed to gather every day. And they ate that for decades. What should they see? The roundness could in some senses represent the eternality of Christ. The whiteness could in turn represent the purity of Christ. The honey could in represent the sweetness and the compassion of Christ. And the gathering should have been a constant learning experience that we have to reach for Him. If I'm going to live the life that I need to live, even in the world in which we live. My desire in life has to be above everything else to reach for Him. That's difficult. That can be problematic. But that can also be made possible because He is the God of more. No problem too big for Him to solve. No person too small for him to use. In that sense, no hunger too deep for him to satisfy. But ultimately, no nourishment received where nourishment is not. See, I haven't forgotten now. You can't get no nourishment if you don't eat. If I pick up someone off the road that's homeless and downtrodden and starving and all that you would sometimes know that people get in those situations. And I bring him home and put him under my table and I set food in front of him and drink in front of him and provide him with everything comfortable and he does nothing but sit with his hands folded. He will die at my table. And that's the problem with the world. They've got just as much access as we do. But number one, they're either refusing it. Or number two, they're being refused. We got to do better.
What's your desire in life? We spent eight minutes. Just, I tell the truth most of the time. We spent eight minutes talking about that. What was the point? That I could be mindful of the focus I should have to the God of more. I don't need anything in life. Matter of fact, if I understand now, I don't have anything in life. Then the only hope I will have is to have. And that is to have a presence and a relationship with the God that created me. If you're here this afternoon, you're not a child of God's. It would be my, my recommendation, my encouragement, my desire that you would do just what God desires of you. You want to feel your desires? Feel His. When He calls upon us to repent of our, to believe on Him and repent of our sins, to be willing to confess His name, to be baptized, in a nutshell, that's all He asks in the initial state. It's that simple. It's that, it's that supposedly easy. And then just to continue to say, keep on. Keep on doing it. Keep coming to me. Keep filling up on me. You know, if you, if you find a person, if you ever find yourself in this state and you are not eating physically, there's a few cases that are apparent. Either you're not hungry, you've already been fed, or you're dead. Where do I stand? I hope I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Why not together while we stand and sing the invitation? So I'm be encouraged.